Well, dear friends, would you take your copy of the Scriptures and turn with me to the book of Acts in chapter 9. We're picking up our reading in Acts 9, verse 26, and we'll be reading to verse 31 as we continue to follow the newly converted Saul of Tarsus on his early journeys. Well, let's pray together and ask the Lord to help us understand His Word. Heavenly Father, we come as a needy people who need specifically to hear from You. We thank You that Your Word is a lamp to our feet. We thank You that Your Word sanctifies us in the truth because Your Word is truth. And Lord, we pray that You would give us ears to hear the truth hearts to receive what You communicate to us in the Scripture. And may You use Your Word to conform us into the image of our Savior and Your Son, even Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, if you're able, would you stand for the reading of God's Word? Again, Acts 9 and verse 26. Hear now God's holy Word. And when He, that is Saul of Tarsus, when He had come to Jerusalem, He attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Well, thus far, God's holy word. Brethren, please be seated. So as we're tracking along with Saul of Tarsus, according to the timeline of events that he gives in Galatians, this former murderous monster had left Damascus three years prior to our text. Saul had left, he had left Jerusalem going to Damascus, determined to destroy the way. That is, this group of people in his mind who were a blasphemous sect, worshipers of Jesus, who were defiling the sacred traditions of the Pharisees. But we saw in previous weeks that Jesus had changed everything. The Lord Jesus confronted Saul on the Damascus road and converted him. He opened Saul's eyes to the truth and called Saul to be his chosen instrument. It was truly a remarkable transformation. And it's one where Saul wastes no time in getting to his task. As we saw last week, he comes among the brothers at, the, at Damascus and he has a new life. He has a new association or new family. And he starts his new mission, preaching in the name of Christ, proclaiming the Son of God, proving that Jesus is the Christ from the Scriptures. Luke doesn't give us all the details, but Saul is preaching both in Syria and in Arabia. He's confounding and frustrating the Jews to the point where they want to kill him. And a plot is uncovered. You remember he has to escape being let down through a window in the city wall, most likely in a basket as though he's a loaf of bread. Well, where's he to go now? Well, this 
changed son of Pharisee's stock decides to go to his old stomping ground, Jerusalem. And Saul intends to do there what he's been doing to make close connections with the church and then engage in his mission to preach Christ. However, if the saints at Damascus were a little skittish about receiving Saul, it's a thousand times worse as he comes to Jerusalem where Saul's former rage against the church is so well known. But what we're going to see, much like we saw last week in fact, is a friend to help, a further focus on ministry, and the fierce assaults against the gospel. So three things total in our text we're going to look at. We, we begin with fear and friendship in verses 26 and 27. Now, according to verse 26, when Saul had come to Jerusalem, he attempted, note that word, he attempted to join the disciples. And the word here for join is, a, is quite strong. It means to cleave together, to engage in the closest of connections. It's used in other places to talk about the marriage bond where you weave and cleave. So a tight association. Now, in Damascus, after Saul was converted, the first thing he did was attach himself to the people of God. He left his former connections and he was with the disciples at Damascus. It's interesting, you, you don't see a pattern in Saul, whom we call the Apostle Paul, or anyone else in Scripture for that matter, of being awakened by grace, being converted in Christ, and then that person has nothing to do with the church. On the contrary, converted people connect with the saints. Converted people go to church. They are with the disciples' people. Those who love Christ love the bride of Christ. And that pattern is immediately practiced upon Saul's transition to a new city. He's got a lot of old associates in Jerusalem. He had been there for years. However, now as a converted man, he's not looking to go back and hang out with his college buddies. He's not running with his old crowd, reminiscing about how life used to be. He wants to be tied, bound, brought into the closest association with Jesus' people because they're now His people. We might compare it to us perhaps moving back to a city where we grew up and maybe we weren't part of the church previously. But then when we move, we immediately go to church. Now think of this with Saul. He doesn't know the people in the church in Jerusalem. In fact, as we're about to see, they don't know anything that's happened to him in the past three years. They only know his past. So it's not that Saul goes to church there because he's got friends. He's got no friends. But he seeks to connect with Christ's people because, brethren, that is what Christians do. Wherever we go, wherever we move, the most important connection to make is the connection with the people of Christ. If life is about following Christ, then we want to walk with those who are walking with Jesus. Now, is that seen in us? You may think, well, preacher, I'm here. It's Sunday morning. Of course, it's true of me. But I want you to see that Saul isn't interested in just showing up at worship. He wants to join with these brethren, to attach himself to them. Is that what we want? Are we aiming to live for Christ? Not just trying to get a little sprinkle of religion by going to church on Sunday. 
No, our, our whole lives wrapped up in knowing Christ and delighting in His people. Is that how we live? Well, in spite of Saul's intentions, the saints in Jerusalem are just not too sure about him. In fact, look at verse 26. And they were all, note the universality of that, all without distinction, they were all afraid of him. Why are they afraid? Well, just think about what Saul had done among their fellowship. He had ripped families apart. You remember back in chapter 8, verse 3, after Stephen had been martyred, Luke reported that Saul was ravaging the church, language of a wild animal set loose, entering house after house, dragging off men and women to put them in prison. Some of these people in the churches in Jerusalem, a bunch of house churches, they might have been separated from their spouses still because of Saul of Tarsus. Some of them might still feel the financial impact of incarceration. Who knows if families have been put back together? And in their suffering, where these house churches have been repeatedly disrupted, they probably have a bit of PTSD. Saul had led the Jerusalem priests or priests uh, and various religious leaders to come bang on your door, bust in your church situation, rip people away, and had given saints over to death. He will say in Acts 22, I persecuted this way to the death. There may be ladies among the group that Saul is seeking to join who he had widowed. Can you imagine that? So when he shows his face in their midst, what do they do? They panic. They absolutely panic. It reminds me of the day when Corey Tinboom recollects a Nazi guard coming to where she was speaking in Munich in 1947. It was a Nazi guard who had been in a camp where she had been imprisoned with her sister and her sister had died. Corey was talking about forgiveness about how God, when He forgives our sin, He casts them into the deepest ocean and they're gone forever. It's quoting Malachi 7, that He tramples our sin underfoot and they're cast into the depths of the sea. But then she sees that man, a man who had made her life horrendous and had made the lives of others terrible. And in, in a rush, all the memories come flooding back of how she had to strip down and walk before this man and others naked as these Nazi soldiers gawked at the gaunt forms of these girls. Corey felt the shame of that situation, the guilt, the anger that that man had brought about. And now he's standing in front of her and he's sticking out his hand to her to shake her hand saying, how good it is to know that as you say, all of our sins are at the bottom of the sea. That man didn't remember Corey but she couldn't forget him. His leather crop hanging at his belt formally to whip the woman. But now what she's supposed to do? Well, the guard told her, as she had mentioned Ravensbrook, Ravensbrook, this camp where she was, that he was a guard there. But since then, he had become a Christian. He didn't remember her. But he said, I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there but I would like to hear it from your lips. Will you forgive me? Some of you might know this story and how Corey describes the wrestling in her soul for seconds that felt like hours. 
but how she was able, by grace alone, offering up a prayer to the Lord Jesus for help to say and shake his hand, I forgive you. It's a beautiful story of forgiveness. The forgiveness Corey was teaching. And that forgiveness is an act of the will. We decide to forgive others. But in our scene, in this text, it's not so positive. The saints in Jerusalem are not ready to accept Saul. They are fearful. Is Saul a plant? Is he a mole? Is he a spy among us to cause trouble? The sight of him sent shivers down their spines and it reminded him of the horrors of the previous days. And while we have no idea what was said, verse 26 seems to indicate that Saul was trying to explain to them they had been saved by grace. They didn't believe him. They were skeptical. Wouldn't you be? This is honest and raw. Don't you love the Bible that doesn't white out the struggles of the saints of God in the past that tells us when they don't do what they should have done? I mentioned last week how God's people are people who understand love and will receive those who have ugly lives who've been changed. That's true, we do. But sometimes we hesitate. Sometimes we're suspicious. Sometimes we eye that new convert with a jaundiced perspective. And all the more so if he hurt our family. Now these spirit-filled Christians are sinners still. And they're struggling to accept this man who made their lives miserable. However, in their sin, which again we can understand, the people are not setting their eyes on the Lord. What did Jesus teach us about fear? Don't fear Him who can kill the body, right? But fear the one who can throw both body and soul into hell. They're not setting their eyes on the Lord Jesus. Their focus is in the wrong place. Additionally, they're doubting the transforming power of the Gospel. They would all say, we believe the Gospel can change anybody. It can make the foulest clean. Do you believe that? And then the foulest shows up and says that he's changed. The Gospel has worked beyond their expectation. And now they're not ready to hear of the work of Christ in Saul. The impression is they didn't want to talk to him. They didn't want to exercise discernment and judging if he was converted They weren't ready to listen and him explain his encounter with Christ, how he had been ministering in the gospel for three years and suffered for Jesus. Now, we saw a similar hesitation last week with Ananias. You remember, he was told in a vision, or it was two weeks ago, he was told in a vision to go and speak to Saul of Tarsus because he's my chosen instrument. And you remember how Ananias responded? Lord, I I don't know about this guy. And the Lord Jesus is patient and just says, go. Well, interestingly, in our passage, nobody's receiving a vision. The Lord is not giving supernatural insight to any person as to what to do with this man. But there is a man among God's people in whom the Spirit is working, and he's resisting skepticism and fear, and he's ready to show love, to be a friend. What's his name? Barnabas. Actually, that's his nickname. His name is Joseph. We met him back in Acts 4, but people called him Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. In Acts 4, that title for him of encouragement is a title used of the Holy Spirit, the paraclete or the comforter, as in the one who comforts us or exhorts us. 
And the intention is Barnabas was probably known to be a man who comforted others, who supported people, who came alongside to encourage. And that spirit-like work is seen in the man right here. Without any supernatural direction from Jesus, but with love working in his heart, Barnabas goes to Saul. He knows the good he ought to do, a readiness to welcome those whom Christ has welcomed, and he does it. Now, verse 27 will tell us that Barnabas took Saul, brought him to the apostles, the idea being if Saul's accepted by the leadership, the people of the church will accept him. He explained Saul's Damascus Road conversion. The Lord appeared to him, spoke to him, and then he started preaching boldly in Jesus' name. But before Barnabas could tell the apostles, obviously Barnabas had to sit down and listen to Saul. He sought Saul out. He pushed aside his fears and he pursued this man. That Saul would dare show his face among this people must mean a work of grace is going on in his heart. Why would he want to join with him? So Barnabas went and he listened. And Barnabas discerned. This man has been genuinely changed by the power of Christ. Now surely that initial conversation would have been Saul recounting his grief over his sin, his love for Jesus who had rescued him, his folly in his past, and the evidence of three years of ministry where he served Christ faithfully. What can we learn from this scene, brethren? Well, I think we can learn about how we ought to be willing to seek out those with formerly rotten lives. How we ought to befriend professing Christians and hear their stories. Hear of what Jesus has done in their heart. Further, we ought to be willing not just to listen to the disenfranchised among us, but to do what we can to make connections among the people. Barnabas wasn't content to, okay, I hear your story, Saul, but you need to go somewhere else. You, you, you know, we got another church. You can There's a house church about 20 miles up the road. Just go there. No, Barnabas did what he could do to promote forgiveness, to promote acceptance. It was also evident, and this is certainly unique to Saul, that Jesus had called him to a significant ministry. The apostles need to be aware of that. How could anyone remain distant from this man when the Lord Jesus Christ had appeared to him? Now, sometimes we read Acts and we're thinking Jesus is talking to somebody on every other page. Brethren, that's not what's going on. Jesus hasn't appeared to anyone after the 40 days and he was ascended to heaven. After his resurrection, he ascended to heaven. But he's appeared to this man. This is a unique moment. King Jesus has called this man to serve him. So the apostles need to hear about this. There's something I think we can learn as Barnabas is introducing this man or advocating for Saul among the apostles. Are we willing to advocate for one another? To support one another? To promote acceptance with one another? Maybe to help reconcile people when there are disruptions and fears? If we see People on on the edges, are we trying to bring them in so that the body of Christ can grow? It ought to be our intention to build relationship, to help people join their lives together as the family of God. And doesn't Barnabas show himself to be a friend who loves at all times? A brother born for adversity? Oh, that 
we could be called Barnabases, friends of the people of God. But how will we ever be if we don't take the time to listen to one another? If the church is a family, are we encouraging a family spirit? That's what we're seeing. But then secondly, see with me. Preaching and persecution. Barnabas' objective was realized in facilitating this conversation with the apostles and Saul. And then verse 28 literally reads, and he, Saul, that is, he was with them going in and going out at Jerusalem. The ESV just reads among them, but with them is important. He was with the disciples at Damascus and now he's with the disciples at Jerusalem. Humanly speaking, it's because of Barnabas that Saul was now welcomed in a part of this people. They were slow to receive him, but they come around and they start treating Saul like a brother. So he's able to move in and out and enjoy their fellowship. But in the midst of this new city with new church connections, Saul does what he's been called to do. He starts preaching. But guess where he goes to preach? Well, not just in the local house churches. No, he comes in and out, verse 28, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus. And where is he preaching specifically? He's preaching to a group called the Hellenists. Now I want you to think about what he's doing. Going to Jerusalem, where he had nearly been killed at Damascus, it wasn't perceived by Saul as a holiday. Oh, and now I'm going to get two weeks off from ministry. I'm just going to lay low. No, he got immediately to preaching because Jesus changed him and Jesus called him. So he goes to, spre- to preach boldly. The word at the end of verse 28 translated speak boldly is the sense is he's preaching fearlessly or courageously in the face of conflict. And he is, verse 29, speaking and disputing against the Hellenists. Now you may remember the Hellenists were the Greek-speaking Jews in Jerusalem who had been, or their families had been, set free probably from slavery and they had moved to Jerusalem. They're militant Jews because they cared enough about Judaism that they wanted to move close to the temple. Their commitment to Judaism was incredibly strong. And it was these very people back in Acts 6 to whom Stephen had preached the Gospel. And what did they do with Stephen? Well, they couldn't refute him. And they see his face shining like an angel, but they won't acknowledge that, oh, he must be meeting with God like Moses did. They killed him. They stoned him to death. And who joined them in killing that man? This very Saul. Over three years ago, Saul had been part of this group. He was a ringleader among them. And knowing what he knows, how these people are militantly opposed to the gospel and anyone who serves Christ, you would think Saul would think to himself, I ain't going there. But that's not what he does. He goes right into the lion's den. And he doesn't obscure his new love for Jesus Christ. He disputes with them. A word that means questioning or arguing. In the sense is, he's preaching Christ. He's confounding them from the Scriptures. He's showing them that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Savior. He's pressing the claims of Christ. Repent and believe because there's only one name under heaven by which we must be saved. And it's the name of the Lord Jesus. He's unpacking the Old Testament before them, showing them that Christ is the one in whom all the promises of God are yes and amen. 
And He wants these people to love Jesus, to see the truth. He wants them to recognize that Christ is the focal point of the entire Bible. Now, brethren, we're not all preachers here. Of course, we're not all called to be public proclaimers of the Gospel. But I think there's still something to learn from Saul and his boldness. Do you see this man's zeal to care about his own people? Do you remember when Jesus cast the legion of demons out of the demoniac? And that now new man sitting at Jesus' feet, no longer crazy, he wants to go with Jesus. He wants to get in the boat and go to the other side and minister with Jesus. And Jesus tells him shockingly, no. But here's what I want you to do. Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how He has had mercy on you. That's a model for us. And it's a model that Saul himself is imitating. He's engaging in polemics, fancy apologetics. He's defending the faith, arguing that Jesus is the Christ. But ultimately, he's just telling them how much Jesus has done for his soul. Is that what we're willing to do? Maybe we're not trained to contend with the hostile about biblical doctrine, but are we willing to tell our former associates, our friends and family, that Jesus Christ is all the world to us? Are we willing to speak of His mercy to our soul? That's what Saul is doing. And he's clearly doing it with great vigor, with bold proclamations. He has studied to be a skilled defender of the faith. For as we saw last time, he was being strengthened as he spent time studying the Word of God. You know, one way to be a bold proclaimer of Christ is simply to be a person who spends much time in the Scriptures. That you have a deep-seated conviction that this Word is the truth. So you will not back down. That's the case with Saul. But soon... And according to the timeline of Galatians, is very soon, only 15 days, he's in Jerusalem. Soon, these Jews are ready to kill him. Verse 29, but they were seeking to kill him. Some plot has been hatched. And like it was at Damascus, the believers somehow learn of the evil intentions. Luke doesn't tell us how, but the Apostle Paul does later in the book, in Acts 22, he says that, while he was in the temple, he had a vision of Jesus telling him, and I quote, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. Now, of course, King Jesus knew all along that these angry Hellenists were not going to receive the testimony of Saul. But I want you to see the kindness of the Lord. He knows these people in their hard heart, but he still sent Saul to them. For what purpose? To call them to repent. And in the last day, the kindness shown here will amount to their judgment. Because they heard Stephen preach and they killed him. And they heard Saul preach and they tried to kill him. They are hardened under the Word of God. They refuse to hear. And the Lord in His purposes rescues Saul from the situation because He has other plans for Saul. But this little episode should remind us, dear friends, of how serious a thing it is to hear the Word of God proclaimed and not respond as you should. Do you remember the harsh words that Jesus will have for the city of Capernaum in particular? 
because they heard him preach and they saw all the things that he saw. And he said, you know, at the last day, Sodom and Gomorrah will rise up at the judgment because they would have repented if they heard what you're hearing. And you don't. What a challenging thing that is. Let us not sit under the gospel and be gospel hardened. Let us respond and do it now. Come to Christ now. Well, Saul is rescued. The believers figure it out. They send him off to Caesarea, which is a town on the Mediterranean coast. And then he returns to Tarsus. Now, once Saul goes to Tarsus, we're not going to hear about him in Acts again until Acts chapter 12, which is over a decade later. Scripture is almost totally silent about what Saul was doing for about a decade until Barnabas comes to get him. But it's likely what we know of Saul the two things are true. One, he didn't quit preaching, proving from the Scripture that Jesus is the Christ. And two, he never stopped studying the Word of God to fuel his preaching. How will the Apostle Paul, that we get to know later in his writings, his letters, how will he become so powerful with the Word? He spent over a decade studying the Word of God. Some of you this morning may be a little discouraged at your knowledge of the Bible, at your ability to defend the faith. You may be down on yourself because you don't have good arguments to come back at people who argue with you. How did Saul get it? They're just kind of popping into his brain? No, he had to study the Word of God. What do you think you should be doing? How are you going to grow in your knowledge of the Lord unless you spend time with the Scriptures? Brethren, we've got to learn to dig and dig and dig in the Word of God. This Word, as Moses put it, is our life. Or how did Jesus say? Man lives by bread alone. But what do we want to live by as people of God? Oh, I said that wrong. <clears throat> right? Man doesn't live by bread alone, but he lives by what? By the Word of God. Well, is that how we live? Do we, do we function as though we've got to feed on the Word of God because it's our bread? Are we coming to the Scripture with that vigor to study and know and learn? We'll never be equipped if we don't spend time in the Scriptures. May God help us. Well, finally, see with me. This is a brief point. Grace and growth, verse 31. Verse 31 is a summary statement of God's grace on the church and how the church keeps growing. Acts has been filled with these summary statements. We last heard one in chapter 6, verse 7. And this little summary statement seems to put together Acts 6, 8 through 9, 30. Persecution had been coming on the church with new power. Death to Stephen, the church scattered. How does the church fare during all of that? Well, first they knew the grace of God to sustain them. Look at verse 31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria. And notice there how we've entered stage two fully of the gospel. The gospel power came upon them to preach at Jerusalem and then where? Judea and Samaria. The gospel's been spreading out. The hint of Galilee, famously known as Galilee of the Gentiles, is telling us more is coming. However, as the gospel expands and persecution is everywhere, what's the condition of the church? Well, the church throughout all these regions, verse 31, had peace and was being built up. Now, some read this peace as a cessation of intense hostility. 
Is that what you've been reading in the past three chapters? <laughs> it's not what I've been reading. Based on just what we've seen, Jews in Damascus and Jews in Jerusalem trying to kill Saul, I don't think the peace is a stoppage of persecution. The peace is a spiritual peace. Here's a people who in the midst of their anxieties sought the Lord and His peace, the peace that passes all understanding, it guarded their heart. The peace of Christ ruled them. Namely, that Christ has established our peace. We're reconciled to God. Our Father in heaven welcomes us. He loves us. He's secured us. And no amount of tribulation or distress can tear us away from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So the saints are settled. They're comforted knowing they belong to God and nothing the devil do can mess it up. Nothing the world can do can mess it up. And not only that, not only do they have peace, they're being built up. Note the passive language there. We don't build up ourselves. I know that's popular self-affirming language of our day. But the biblical sense is God by His grace builds us up. How does He do that? Well, Paul will put it this way to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20. I commend you to God and to the word of His grace which is able to build you Acts chapter 20, verse 32. We are built up. We are fortified in the faith through the Word of God's grace. God uses the preaching of His Word to strengthen us spiritually, to teach us what we're to believe, to rebuke our evil patterns, to correct our steps, to train us in righteousness. And the Word of His grace is the primary means to assure us that we have peace with God. It molds our understanding it shapes our affections. It directs us with the truth. Do you want peace this morning? Well, you're not going to get it with a beach vacation or a mountain retreat or just breathing, doing a little bit of silent meditation. You're going to get peace when the Word of Christ dwells in you richly. Do you want maturity? Well, solid food is for the mature. In other words, Crave the Word. Feed your soul on the Word. And then the church is said to evidence that maturity in two ways. They're walking in the fear of the Lord. That is, they're living in a right reverence in view of King Jesus. They're cultivating an awareness that Jesus reigns and I'm going to please Him. And they were walking in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. God's people are facing trouble, persecution from without, Pressure from within, always fighting that we live in a world where the outer man is wasting away, but the inner man is being renewed. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is giving them comfort. What's the Holy Spirit doing? He's telling us, you're Christ. You have access to the Father. You're a child of God. You're ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven. You have the hope of the glory of God. And these consolations filled the church so that the people of God walked around in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And as they walked in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, what happened to the church? End of verse 31. It multiplied. Or more literally, it was being multiplied. God was giving growth. Just as God added to the numbers of the people earlier, He's adding to them again. Now, Sometimes church growth is exponential. 
Wouldn't it be wonderful if at Pentecost we saw 3,000 souls in one day converted to Christ? That happens. But sometimes the growth is just ordinary slow growth. And that seems to be the case here. The people, as they're walking in maturity, as they're walking in the fear of Christ and the consolation of the Holy Spirit, they are seeing God grow their numbers. How is that happening? Well, what happens to us when we walk in the fear of Christ and we walk around with the comfort of the Holy Spirit? We're probably ready to speak for Jesus. We might be ready to answer that question when someone asks, hey, what is the reason that you have such consolation in the midst of all this trouble? And you say, let me tell you about the Lord Jesus. That's how the church was growing. God's people feared the Lord and God added to their numbers. May that happen to us. Brother, may we know the peace of Christ ruling our hearts. And may we see the church grow because we're walking around in the consolation, the comfort of the Holy Spirit, fearing Christ. May that be attractive to a lost and broken world. Let's pray together. Lord our God, we come in praise of You because You are a great God who does wonderful things, saving sinners, raising up sons of encouragement like Barnabas, causing Your Word to both bring judgment, but also to bring grace to awaken hearts. And Lord, we pray that Your Word would work its work in us, establish and firm up our peace as we look to Christ who is our peace. And Lord, we pray that we would recognize what a privilege we have that we could be called the children of God, that Your Spirit would dwell in us May you therefore cause us to be at ease in the soul so that we're ready and eager to speak for the Lord Jesus Christ. May we be students of the Word. Work these things in our hearts, we pray, by the power of your Holy Spirit. For we ask it in Jesus' name and all of God's people said, Amen. Amen.